I started just with little things that bugged me. Uh, you know, people who said that um, you can stand an egg on end on the first day of spring, for example. That's a, a legend that was pretty big in the 1980s and 90s in the United States, and it's kind of gone now. I don't see that much of it anymore. But uh, and, and, of course, I'll take full credit for that. Um, uh, probably not. But there are tons of things like that. Why the moon looks big when it's on the horizon versus overhead. Why the sky is blue. It was myths like that, but it, it grew and grew until I started taking on things like astrology, UFOs, creationism. And now it's just almost any sort of attack on science, anything there where uh, science is basically spun folded or mutilated by, by people for whatever reasons. My name is Phil Plate. I'm an astronomer and I blog the Bad Astronomy blog for Slate Magazine. Hello and welcome to the Grox Science Show. I'm Forrest Goulden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. As you heard at the top of the show, our guest today is Dr. Phil Plate. Dr. Plate is an astronomer, a blogger, and a fantastic ambassador for space and science. He is also a frequent debunker of commonly held misconceptions and misinformation. That's right. For example, in the introduction to today's show, Dr. Plate talked about debunking the idea that on the first day of spring, you could stand an egg on its end. Yeah, and if you ran a website or a TV program devoted to proving that the moon landings were fake, then you might find yourself featured on Dr. Plate's blog, Bad Astronomy. One person featured recently on Bad Astronomy was Florida Senator Marco Rubio. Senator Rubio was interviewed for GQ magazine, and one portion of the interview in particular has gotten a lot of press. A lot of press. Here's the transcript. GQ asked Senator Rubio, how old do you think the Earth is? Rubio answered, and this is the unedited quote, I'm not a scientist, man. I can tell you what recorded history says. I can tell you what the Bible says, but I think that's a dispute among theologians, and I think it has nothing to do with the gross domestic product or economic growth of the United States. I think the age of the universe has zero to do with how our economy is going to grow. I'm not a scientist. I don't think I'm qualified to answer a question like that. At the end of the day, I think there are multiple theories out there on how the universe was created, and I think this is a country where people should have the opportunity to teach them all. I think parents should be able to teach their kids what their faith says, what science says. Whether the Earth was created in seven days or seven actual eras, I'm not sure we'll ever be able to answer that. It's one of the great mysteries. That is a long quote. Yeah. Just to highlight the... <laughs> Just to highlight the important bits, Senator Rubio doesn't know how old the Earth is, nor is he qualified to discuss the age of the Earth because he is not a scientist, and theologians still debate that very question. And additionally, the age of the Earth doesn't have anything to do with the economy. There's a lot of meat in that statement for a world-class debunker like Dr. Plate to sink his teeth into. And Dr. Plate did sink his teeth into that statement with a recent post on the Bad Astronomy blog. One of the topics Dr. Plate honed in on was the idea that the age of the Earth doesn't have anything to do with the economy. There's, there are two ways to look at this. One is, is to take him literally and say, does knowing the age of the Earth affect our economy? Well, no, unless that's a, a question on your 
application for a job. Um, so, so no, not really. However, the reason we know the age of the earth is due to a confluence of a vast number of different fields of science. Uh, some of them in, include geology, astronomy, uh, biology, evolution, that sort of thing. Um, certainly, there are other sciences like anthropology and linguistics and history that show quite clearly the earth is way more than 10,000 years old. Um, but these other sciences, what you might want to call the harder sciences of, of physics and chemistry and those, show that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, our economy depends on those sciences. Relativity. Quant I mean, quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the basis of, of, of how you and I are talking to each other right now over the internet through computers. Um, electromagnetism, physics, chemistry, all of this stuff is, is the absolute foundation of our economy when it comes to building technology and engineering. And to, to dismiss all of that with a wave of the hand and say, you know, theologians argue over the age of the earth. And, you know, we don't know how old the Earth is. That's nonsense. We do know how old the Earth is. It's because of science, and it's the same science that is the root base foundation of our economy. And to, to dismiss that is um, awful. It's just awful, in my opinion. When you put it like that, it makes Rubio's comments even more ridiculous. Right. When you remember or realize that the science that allows us to have things like the internet and smoke detectors is the same science that tells us the Earth is about four and a half billion years old, well, it's hard to imagine our economy not being impacted by the age of the Earth. Of course, Senator Rubio is not alone in making comments like this. Lots of politicians do this kind of thing. In fact, one very prominent Democrat made a statement that sounded a lot like Rubio's. On April 13, 2008, then-Senator Barack Obama was asked, Senator, if one of your daughters asked you, and maybe they already have, Daddy, did God really create the world in six days? What would you say? I liked your Obama daughter voice. <laughs> uh, Senator Obama answered, What I've said to them is that I believe that God created the universe and that the six days in the Bible may not be six days as we understand it. It may not be 24-hour days, and that's what I believe. I know there's a, a debate between those who read the Bible literally and those who don't, and I think it's a legitimate date, debate within the Christian community of which I'm a part. My belief is that the story that the Bible tells about God creating this magnificent earth on which we live, that is essentially true. That is fundamentally true. Now, whether it happened exactly as we might understand it reading the text of the Bible, that I don't presume to know. So you have a lot of the same themes touched on by Rubio in Obama's answer. Both mentioned the Bible, and both talked about debates among theologians. Dr. Plate, however, pointed out one big difference between the senators. President Obama has done the same thing. He was asked a very similar question and gave a very similar answer. However, you have to look at the context of this. Um, Rubio says he wants creationism taught in schools, which is unconstitutional and illegal, uh, whereas President Obama has said many times... It doesn't matter what his personal belief is. Science should be taught in schools. Evolution should be taught in school, which is correct. So I, I feel that um, politicians have a lot of power, of course, in, in making laws. And they need to be uh, understanding of, of what's really going on around them. They should at least be understanding of the Constitution since they swore to uphold it. Uh, but even that aside, uh, just saying things like that not even not even really engaging this argument, which is essentially a scientific question, in a scientific way, uh, when when the venue itself was neutral. I mean, this is just an interview by GQ. It's not like he was in a church or a lab. 
So for him to go in that direction, I think, is very indicative of the kind of politician he is. Another similarity between then-Senator Obama's answer and Senator Rubio's answer is that both senators, to some extent, opined that they were unqualified to answer the question. Obama made clear that he isn't a theologian and doesn't presume to know how the Bible is fundamentally true. Rubio made clear that he isn't a scientist, and so, therefore, he doesn't know how old the Earth is. Dr. Plate had something to say about that as well. It doesn't matter if you're a scientist or not. You know, I'm not a scientist, but the Earth isn't flat. You know, we know that, too. The Earth is roughly a sphere. You don't have to be a scientist to know that. Scientists study science, but anybody can study science. You know, scientists do the research, I suppose you could say it that way. I, I found his, his point to be somewhat pandering to, to his base. I agree with Dr. Plate. Of course you don't have to be a scientist to know a scientific fact. You don't have to be a mathematician to know 2 plus 2 equals 4, or an oceanographer to know that water is wet. Or an astronomer to know that the Earth isn't flat. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Plate said something else interesting, and maybe a little obvious in his answer. <laughs> Dr. Plate said he found Senator Rubio's point to be somewhat pandering to Rubio's base. That raises a big question. When people say something like what Rubio did, are they pandering to an audience, or do they really believe what they say? Well, that's a good question, and it's difficult to answer. And I, I, I've thought about that a lot because I've been dealing with, over the past 15 years, people promulgating all sorts of nonsensical ideas, you know, giant planets roaming the solar system that will destroy the Earth, uh, you know, pick, pick any theory, the face on Mars, whatever, NASA fake the moon landings. Uh, these, these ideas all have one thing in common, and that is they're completely wrong, and the evidence is totally against them. The question of motivation, though, some of these people, I think, are sincere. They really honestly believe what they're saying. Other ones, there's copious evidence that they're, you know, thieving, lying scum that are trying to lie to people to get their money, to get their influence, whatever. So I try not to ascribe motivations to these people simply because in the end it doesn't really matter. Uh, the thing is they're wrong and we have evidence against them. So if a politician is being paid by... Uh, uh, big oil companies to discredit climate change, or they honestly think that it's a hoax perpetrated on humanity. Uh, either way, uh, they're wrong, and we need to show that they're wrong to the public. Motivation doesn't matter. What matters is that they're wrong. I like that. I like that the solution is so easy. Just tell people that they're wrong, give them the truth, and let the facts speak for themselves. Then... Poof! Every wrong in the world will be fixed. That sounds like sarcasm to me. Oh, really? Well, regardless, I am sorry to tell you that your plan to fix the world is flawed. Oh. As Dr. Plate pointed out, unfortunately, the facts don't speak for themselves. One thing we know that doesn't work is simply showing people facts. Um, there's been a lot of work on this, especially recently. My friend Chris Mooney wrote a book called The Republican Brain, which shows, uh, where he shows a lot of evidence, actually, that people uh, think differently, that, that liberals and conservatives tend to think differently, and that affects how they attack a problem and how, uh, how they react to a problem. And so, it, it, you know, I'm not necessarily saying one is right and one is wrong, uh, because there are plenty of attacks on science from the left as well as the right. Uh, but what one thing that has absolutely been shown to be true is simply showing people the facts doesn't work. The facts do not speak for themselves. Uh, if you believe uh, 
that the earth is 6,000 years old. I'll pick that example. If you're a young earth creationist and, and you're a literal uh, Bible interpreter and you think the earth is six to 10,000 years old, there is almost no amount of evidence I can show you, despite overwhelming massive tsunami of evidence that the earth is actually billions of years old. That will not affect you necessarily because you have a strong belief that you've had since childhood that the Bible is inerrant. And so uh, it just doesn't matter. The only way to change that attitude is to um, either remove that person from uh, the environment that they're in and, and, and get them some diversity in their, in their um, experience. Uh, or, or they just have to find, find that for themselves, which is very difficult. But me standing on a pulpit and yelling at people and saying, you know, radiometric dating of uranium and lead and strontium show that the Earth is 4.54 billion years old, that will just uh, wash right over the back of people who are inclined to disbelieve. And that, that's, I don't, I don't mean to pick on young Earth creationists necessarily here. It's true for everything. It's true for climate change. It's true for evolution. It's true for people who think vaccines cause autism, another... A widespread bit of misinformation that is grossly untrue. You can present these people with the facts all you want, um, but it doesn't work. You you need more emotional arguments. You need more connecting arguments, things like that, to to be able to to contact uh, these folks. I have to be honest. I think that's a little depressing. Asking scientists to rely on emotional appeals almost seems cruel. We train continually to be objective, and our goal is often to not let emotions influence our work. And as scientists, we want the facts to be sufficient without subjective influences. That's true, but scientists are people and have emotions. And there are positive emotions associated with science that can be shared, like the thrill of discovery and wonder at the complexity of the natural world. Mm -hmm. In other words, I think it is possible for scientists to communicate emotionally and effectively without compromising the factual content. Here, let's let Phil give an example. Why should somebody believe me, an astronomer, uh, when I say vaccines don't cause autism? And the answer is because I've read research papers and I have lots of friends who have done the research and I've read this stuff and it's clear vaccines don't cause autism. The problem is if I am a young parent and I've got a baby and I want to get, uh, the doctor says, you know, here's, here's the vaccine schedule for your baby and I look at that and freak out. I go online and start looking up information. I see, oh, this guy's an astronomer. You know, he's got this evidence. But I've got these other people telling me they gave their kids a vaccine and weeks later, their kid was showing symptoms of autism. That's very frightening. And it, it's, a, it's more of an emotional argument than it is an intellectual one. On the other hand, I'm also a parent. I have a daughter. And she has had all of her vaccines since she was a baby. So... I make a big point of that when I talk about vaccinations. Look, I'm a parent too. I read what I was supposed to read. I read all the arguments when my daughter was a month old and two months old. And I talked to other parents and I, I felt that same fear that every parent feels. And by saying that, I'm not just some ivory tower scientist as somebody's reading about what I'm saying. They see themselves in that writing. Oh, here's another parent who went through this. That's an emotional connection that I think a lot of people don't try to establish. And you absolutely have to if you're going to connect with your audience and convince them that you're right. So the evidence against the connection between autism and vaccines is strong, but presenting that evidence as a sterile packet of data isn't an effective way of communicating it. 
Instead, it helps to filter the data through personal experience. This sort of contextual reframing is incredibly important and can happen everywhere. Take global warming. The data for anthropogenic climate change is extremely strong. However, this evidence is not universally accepted. And one of the many reasons the data are not accepted is because different people view the evidence through different filters. For example, if you think environmentalists are crazy nuts who will do anything to hug a tree, well, you might be more likely to think global warming is a hoax. On the flip side, if economic growth is important to you, an argument framing global warming as an economic issue might be particularly effective. And if that argument includes anecdotes about people who have gotten jobs in the green economy, the argument can only be strengthened. However, these are really only sort of stopgap measures. They convince people on a case-by-case basis, and unfortunately, there are, there are a lot of cases of bad science out there. What would be great is to make people more scientifically inclined to begin with. Fortunately, there are a lot of ways to broadly improve scientific literacy. Dr. Plate mentioned some of these methods. It's not any one thing. I think that um, one of the biggest problems we have when we're looking for solutions for problems is to look for the solution. And there's never a solution. There's usually a bunch of them that are interwoven, and disentangling them can be very difficult. So an obvious one would be to have science uh, taught better in this country. But how do you do that? You know, you need, you need good teachers, but they have to have good science education to be good teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And there are lots of great teachers, but probably just not enough. Um, the way science is portrayed has to be better uh, in, in everyday life uh, and, and as trivial as, as something as like TV shows and movies and that is actually getting better. There are groups uh, trying to improve the way science is shown in movies and a lot of uh, producers and writers, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people in Hollywood are um, actively talking to scientists to help the science of their TV shows and movies get better, which I think is awesome. Um, and then we just have to give people more of it. Studies, polls have shown that people are eager for more science. They want more science in their news, in their newspapers and, and, and media like that. But the media never seem to hear that. They relegate science to a, a, you know 30 seconds out of a half hour broadcast or something like that. And then it's usually mishandled. So it's, it's sort of you know bang your head against a wall time. All of these things, um, I think, would be helped if we showed people more how cool science is. And I, I've uh, certainly taken that on myself, and I, can, I could easily name two or three dozen people who have on the web, in books, uh, in magazines, on TV, all of that, where you know it's like, hey, look at this. Maybe you didn't know this. This is really cool. Um, even if it doesn't impact your life directly, if it's just something awesome, uh, that makes your life better just knowing that that's out there. And I present uh, the landing of the Curiosity rover on Mars as evidence of that. There were millions of people glued to their computers, glued to their televisions, watching this live. Uh, and it was just a robot sitting down on Mars. But it was um, an amazing event that brought a lot of people together. And I think that that shows that there is a strong undercurrent of excitement about science in America, if not the world. And it's something we need to tap into a lot better. So science has two things going for it. First, science is cool. And second, people love cool things. Right. And if more people start loving science, more attention will be paid to science. And then more people will see that science is cool. It can really feed on itself. 
As Dr. Plate pointed out, news coverage of science can inspire a real love for science. Another thing that can make people love science, doing science. For Forrest and I, that's easy. We get to go back to the lab after this broadcast. But not everyone has the opportunity to walk into a lab and pick up a set of pipettes. It turns out, however, that you don't need a lab or even a job in science to pursue research opportunities. Citizen science projects are popping up all over the place, more and more every week. And we've talked to people here on Grox, such as Dr. Julie Horvath, the director of the Genomics and Microbiology Research Laboratory at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, who are involved in citizen science projects. Could citizen science and getting people to really love science be the solution to this issue? And the answer? Could be. I, I'm not sure at what level it is now because it's just starting out. And I'll, I'll have to say, I was pretty skeptical about this idea. You know, getting untrained people to work on data, are you crazy? Um, not so much as, a, as an ivory tower scientist, just knowing that you, you need some background to be able to do a lot of research. Now, I'm used to doing you know, heavy level research. That's what I did when I worked on Hubble and, and was a professional research astronomer. But not everything uh, takes, you know, four years of calculus to understand or, or, you know, a huge understanding of statistics. That was, when that, when that finally sort of hit me, that's when I looked at this and went, oh, citizen science is very powerful. You can train people relatively quickly to do um, tasks which are um, uh, maybe time-consuming or impossible for a computer to do, um, but which are very important. And, and one of the earliest ones was Galaxy Zoo, where people would look at pictures of galaxies that were taken by telescopes, and all they had to do was mark it as a spiral galaxy, a, an elliptical galaxy, sort of a fuzzy ball, or an irregular galaxy, just a weird shape. And then if it, was, uh, if it, if it happened to be a spiral galaxy, uh, were the arms opening in a clockwise or counterclockwise direction? That's all, it, that's all it was. And you got to look at uh, pictures of galaxies and click on them and, and, and click the buttons to say what it was. Unbelievably addicting. Unbelievable. Crack cocaine of the internet. It was just, you know, I'd say, oh, I'll do 10 more. And then next thing I know, I've done 150 more, you know. And they had thousands and hundreds of thousands of galaxies classified this way. And you can start to do really good statistics. And now there's other things like moon mappers where people uh, look at moon uh, craters on the moon, images of them, and they can mark them, um, uh, guess their size, and, and, and do things like that. And this sort of statistical collection of data helps the scientists a lot. And it's fun, and it's free, and, and it leads to other things. There are far more things you can do um, that people can do without a lot of scientific training, and it's fun. So I'm kind of hoping that as this stuff grows, and there are more and more of these things out there, if you go to cosmoquest.org, you'll find uh, a handful of these citizen science projects, and there are quite a few more. You can find them on the web. I think as these things grow, as classrooms start to do them, you'll see more and more people engaged in science. And when you engage in it in this way, hands-on, you, you kind of own it. You, 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 when somebody shows you a picture of the moon or a galaxy or something, you go, oh, yeah, you know what? I classified galaxies once. That was fun. And, and it's an easier way to engage in this thing. And I, I kind of hope that it, it'll grow uh, as it deserves to. And more people will realize how much fun it is. And then who knows in a, in a few years how big this could be. It could be, could be quite large. The Internet makes this stuff a lot easier. So citizen science can contribute enormously to research projects. It can be fun and it can engage the broader populace and get people excited about science. There is such a thing, however, as too much excitement. 
the uh, project scientist for uh, Mars Science Laboratory, the Curiosity rover, was interviewed by NPR and said that they had found something after scooping up some of the Martian surface and analyzing it chemically. Um, they had found something that he, he said was earth-shaking and was one for the history books. And I read that and went, oh, no. Um, it, 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 there are a lot of different ways of looking at this. He, you know, he probably shouldn't have said that, uh, you know, but you know, scientists get excited and so it's understandable. Um, the problem is, of course, as soon as you say something like that and it gets on the internet, everybody starts speculating. And so uh, people are saying they found life or they found water or whatever. And, and it's, no, we don't know what he found. We don't even know what field of science it pertains to what he found. It could be geology, it could be biology, it could be chemistry, uh, it could be anything. And um, of course, nobody's saying uh, if if this is something groundbreaking, um, they want to make sure that it's correct, and they they have to um, analyze the the data again and make sure other people look at it. Um, and and so I understand how this is going. I understand people wanting to speculate and I understand the scientists being excited and I understand NASA saying, yeah, 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 well, you know, we'll talk about this when it happens. Um, but in the meantime, yeah, NASA's been burned before. Uh, they've made, they've made these announcements like we, we have a thing that, that uh, a press conference going on in a couple of days that will have a profound impact on astrobiology and the search for extraterrestrial life. And of course, everybody thinks they've detected a signal from another planet. And it turns out, no, it was a study of bacteria on Earth that apparently could metabolize arsenic, which at, uh, is, is something we don't think um, carbon-based life can do. And, you know, in the end, it turned out uh, most people think that study was wrong. Um, but e e either way, even if it had turned out to be right, announcing it that way, you know, anybody outside of NASA would have said, yeah, everybody's going to think this is aliens, dude. What are you thinking? So I, I kind of wish they would be a little more careful when they do stuff like that. I understand wanting to promote their stuff, but it needs to be done carefully. You need to have an understanding of your audience and, and what the Internet is like. They're going to jump to the wildest of conclusions. It's very natural, and the Internet feeds off stuff like that. Since we recorded our interview with Dr. Plate, we found out that NASA's big announcement was essentially a misunderstanding. The project manager meant only that the entire mission was historically awesome, which it is, not that any one discovery was super awesome. And it is historically awesome. Less awesome, however, is what Dr. Plate has already had to do. That's right. Dr. Plate has already had to debunk a fake NASA press release claiming that the big announcement, the discovery of plastic Mardi Gras beads on Mars. <laughs> And on that note, that's that's it for our show today. If you want to hear more from us, you can find podcasts at our website, grokscience.wordpress.com, or on archive.org and prx.org. There are 10 years of episodes on a wide variety of subjects, including, I think there's one on, on religion and science. I think so. Anyways, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. From everyone at Grox, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and Elise Kovic, I'm Forrest Golden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Keep on grokkin'.